And so it is always good to be with you all. We have a, we have a lot of verses to cover today. Pastor Jack announced uh, that um, I'm to do two weeks worth uh, as we finish up Luke. So we're doing Luke chapter 23 and chapter 24. That's 109 verses. We won't read the 109 verses. I'm going to entrust that you have done that or will do that. Um, so in order to dive into that, whether it's one verse or 109 verses, we always need the help of the Holy Spirit. So will you join me in prayer? Most gracious and loving Father, thank you. Thank you for uh, giving us this wonderful day that we can gather together in your presence. Whenever you summon us to study your word, it is always a joy in our hearts, in our lives, because through your word, you speak to us. You tell us your word of love, of hope. Through your word, you shape and form faith. Through your word, you transform us, and you call us again and again to follow Jesus for life. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to lead us and guide us in all wisdom, in all truth. I pray for my friends here, and even those who will be watching this after the fact, through the recording, that you would bless us, O Lord, that you would anchor us to your heart, that you would reassure us, O Lord, that you are with us, we are with you, we are with one another because indeed Jesus Christ is risen. So it is in the power of the resurrection, in the hope of the resurrection, that we gather together. So may all that we do, all that we say, be well-pleasing to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. And everyone says, amen. Amen, amen. All right, Luke 23, 24. Before we do so, I'm going to ask us to take a, an ussy or a selfie, a selfie but an ussy. And so if everyone would, would smile. So I am, I am old enough, young enough uh, to remember the time that when I was in Guam, little kid, you know, um, you all know I was born in Guam and my father so my parents had me when they were teenagers, about um, 18 going on 19. And my father was enrolled at the University of Guam. And he took up photography, and I think a minor in Japanese. And I remember him, uh, faint memories of him taking photos and then taking the film into the bathroom, right, and putting all the chemicals. And then all of a sudden, woof, here was, the, here was that finished image. And then uh, a few years later, we purchased a Polaroid. That was a cool thing, right? And you all know all that I'm talking about, right? So the Polaroid, instant develop. And then I think for my seventh birthday, my parents gave me my first, my own camera, which was uh, a Kodak disc. And it was really cool. It was a nice silver, very shiny one. and. Uh, round film, and I would snap a lot of photos, but I wouldn't drop it off at the Kodak kiosk uh, immediately. Sometimes it would take several weeks, if not months, until we would have the chance to put it in the envelope and drive by the kiosk and then drop it in. And then when the pictures would come out, it would be like, oh, 
That was like last year. Right? <laughs> then fast forward, here we have our handy dandy mobile devices. Take it and we see it right away. The evolution of photography is something similar to what's happening in Luke and as I put in your outline in Acts, in the book of Acts. I think we studied the book of Acts several years ago here and whenever you and I study the gospel according to Luke or study or read the book of Acts of the Apostles, we always have to have those side by side. If it's possible for you to have two Bibles, if you will, and lay them side by side, because it's believed that Luke and Theophilus, um, who was his colleague, named in Acts chapter 1, and their communities, their, the churches that they belonged to, that Luke and Theophilus and their communities were largely responsible for writing the Acts of the Apostles and the Gospel according to Luke. So Luke and Acts are essentially one volume, and they inform the other. But both books, Luke and Acts, as with all of the, as with all of the uh, books of the New Testament, of course, were written decades after the fact. Right? Um, it wasn't that there was a scribe at Calvary's cross jotting down as Jesus was being crucified. It all happened by oral tradition as the disciples experienced what they saw, what they heard, telling other people, telling other people, sort of like the game of telephone, telling other people and other people and other people, the Holy Spirit guiding all of that. And then it wasn't until decades later that they actually wrote it down. Well, the Acts of the Apostles are the accounts of the early church as they were living out what the Gospel according to Luke is writing about, right? And that in itself, the Acts of the Apostles, they wrote that down after the fact of what was happening there. So it was the future, if you will, recounting the past that's recounting the past. Sort of a picture within a picture within a picture, right? And that's what's happening. And as I've said before, in the New Testament, particularly in that first century period, that middle to first century period, after, after Jesus ascends to heaven, the early church was concerned with at least three predominant things and three very important things. Right? Number one, they had the early uh, disciples uh, numbering just a few hundred until Pentecost when then uh, we read there were several thousand, right? But just a few hundred. They had to get the story of Jesus right because he physically wasn't with them, right? They had to get it right. They had to get it right that the oral tradition, the stories that they were hearing, his teachings, his teachings about love, his teachings about the kingdom, that they get, you know, that they got that as accurately as possible because they would have to be sure that the Jesus movement wouldn't stop with them. And so they had to get the core message of the gospel, the integrity of the gospel right. right? So that was number one, to get that right. Number two, they were also concerned about sharing that story, the good news of Jesus Christ, in 
in the midst of challenges both internal to the church and external. Now, internal, there's infighting, right? Like with so many churches, infighting. We don't fight here in this church. Uh, but in the early church, a lot of factions. Um, in fact, as yesterday at, at La Casa Glen, folks were asking me about the Apostle Paul and, you know, uh, what was up with the Apostle Paul and, and, and um, were there factions as well during his ministry? And I said, absolutely. There were people in the early church that were questioning his apostleship. And we get glimpses of that in his letter to Corinth and in Galatians. People who were questioning, is he a bona fide apostle? Because he wasn't, the Apostle Paul wasn't with the disciples during Jesus' ministry, right? So there were factions. So internal challenges, factions, um, heresies, the proliferation of heresies uh, that vandalized the gospel or that uh, distorted the gospel, right? So that in itself was a challenge to that first challenge about getting the gospel right. If there was a heresy, even just a little bit of a distortion of the truth, that was a vandalism against the gospel. So that was a challenge. The external challenges, pagan society, the external challenge of it's the Roman Empire. Uh, Pontius Pilate is still on the throne. The Caesars are on the throne. So that, that's going against the early church. So all of that combined, then number three, right? The third predominant challenge, um, as the early church was spreading out from Jerusalem to, to, uh, to Judea, to Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the known world, it wasn't just the uh, Jewish uh, Judean believers, it was also Gentiles. And so they were wrestling with, the early church was wrestling with, what is the relationship of Jews and Gentiles? That this one covenant of God that we have received from our ancestors, from our mothers and grandmothers who have taught us the faith about Abraham, about Isaac, about Queen Esther, about Sarah, all the rest, the patriarchs and matriarchs of the faith. So what does this mean that we're one family, one covenant, but then there's Jews and Gentiles. And we see this erupting between the, the, the fight between the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul over that question, right? And so those three predominant questions, challenges, if you will, are before the early church. And the Acts of the Apostles recounts those pivotal years as the early church is living out the call or the so-called great commission of Jesus, right, to go forth, make ye disciples of all nations, as we read in Matthew chapter 28 in the closing verses, and, bop, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. So his commission, his, his, his final assignment, tell people, Baptize people, teach them my ways, teach them about me. They're doing that, confronted with all of these challenges. And so, when we look at Luke and Acts together, we see what's happening in Acts is being informed and shaped by the events that are being recounted in the gospel according to Luke. Right? They're not disconnected. 
The Gospel according to Luke is not some nostalgic photograph that they say, wow, that was wonderful. Jesus was born. Uh, he healed. He told some parables. Um, he was arrested. Uh, he had his final meal with the uh, disciples. Um, he was judged before Pontius Pilate. Uh, he was crucified. Um, three days later, he rose from the grave. Um, the first witnesses, the first apostles, if you will, were the women. Thank God for the women, right? Um, they go off uh, to the disciples to tell what they saw. And the text says in Luke chapter 24, in our English translations, that it seemed to the other disciples that the women's story about the empty tomb were idle tales. Do you see that? Idle tales, I-D-L-E, idle tales. Our English Bibles, our English translations are very, um, how should we say, sensitive. Because the original Greek term that's translated idle tales is not just idle tales. Since this is a, a, a church and we're in sacred ground and this is being recorded, I won't tell you um, or I won't speak what the actual translation of that is, but it is an expletive. It is something that has to do with um, things in the toilet, um, and that's what that is. Um, that to them, it was that. They were in disbelief. Um, it was foolishness. It was not just foolishness. It was they relegated their testimony as something coming from the sanitarium. And so that's why they had to send Peter, or Peter volunteered in his characteristic way, go and verify, verify, verify. And here in this text, we see how the, the risen Christ makes his appearance. And only here in this gospel do we see that he makes the appearance to these um, two disciples on the way to Emmaus. And he wants, to see, he wants to see if they see. They're saying to Jesus, why, like you're not aware that this Jesus of Nazareth, not knowing that he's right there, in front of them, and they proceed to tell him about himself. And the text goes on to say there in verses 27, 24, chapter 24, verse 27, he opens up the scriptures for them. Now, we know, of course, that the scriptures that were available to them at that time were the Old Testament, right? The, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. And he points them, he directs them to Moses, to the prophets, to the Psalms, concerning himself. We scratch our head and say, well, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus make his appearance on Christmas, like Matthew chapter 1, Mark chapter 1? How is it that Jesus is in the Old Testament? Isn't the Old Testament um, preparation leading to Jesus? And Jesus says, in, essentially, in verse 27 of chapter 24, when you look at Moses, when you look at the, book of, the books concerning Moses, which is Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, when you look at the prophets, 
the book of the prophets, when you look at Psalms, he's right there. I'm right there. Now, we know that after the fact that he is there, even though he's not explicitly named because he's the eternal word, right? He didn't all of a sudden just begin to exist on Christmas Day. He was already the eternal word from the beginning, even before the beginning. So he teaches them, I'm right there. But they don't fully grasp it until it says later, he breaks bread with them. The breaking of bread together with his teaching of the scriptures go together. And the Spirit uses the breaking of the bread and Jesus' teaching to disclose to them, here's the truth about me. He then repeats that in verse 36 of chapter 24 when he makes his appearance to the other disciples. He breaks bread and he broils fish. Yes. He broils fish, and it says that he teaches them also in verses uh, 44 about the law of Moses, the prophets, etc. So he does the same thing with the rest of the disciples, and their eyes were open and they recognized him. Breaking of bread, as we'll do on Sunday, together with the sermon, the proclamation, they go together. Those are gifts of God for the people of God. The Spirit uses the breaking of bread the sacramentality of breaking of bread, which is like breaking his body, with his teaching to open up their hearts, open up their minds. And then it goes on to say, he then teaches them about himself, about repentance, and then he ascends to heaven. He sends them off from Jerusalem, and then it continues in the book of Acts. Now, why recount all this? We just went through 109 verses, by the way right, in like 15 minutes. Because what happens in the Acts of the Apostles is paralleling what's happening in the life of Jesus. They are so intertwined. For example, when I put this in your outline, for example, one of the first things that the early apostles did in Acts chapter 1 was to pray and to discern, to select who is the spirit calling to succeed Judas Iscariot, right, as the 12th apostle? Because by this time, Judas is dead. Pastor Jack had preached about uh, Judas Iscariot uh, several weeks ago, um, how he committed suicide, how he, um, two, two different accounts, one that he uh, tied himself um, on a tree, another that his body was at the bottom of the rocks and his guts split open. Um, Gleason Archer, Professor Gleason Archer, who used to teach Old Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, he has a wonderful volume that came out in the 90s called The Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. I recommend that to you. And in there, some of the sort of the common, you know, Bible difficulties, like, and one of them is that account of Judas Iscariot. Was he did he hang himself from the tree, or how did he end up on the rocks? And in that section where he addresses that, Professor Archer says how they're not contradictory at all. They actually complement each other. That if we were to reconcile those two accounts, Judas tied himself, hung himself from a tree, 
and that perhaps that particular tree that was prevalent um, in that region and the wind, the gust of wind, would easily have blown against the branch and with the weight of his neck and his whole body would have caused the branch to break and cause him to fall headlong to the rocks at the bottom. So they're quite uh, complementary um, in their accounts. So the first, uh, the first thing, the first act, if you will, the first act of faithfulness that the apostles that we read about in Acts chapter 1 is they're going to select who will be the successor of Judas Iscariot to be the 12th apostle. And they're praying and praying, and they know the two, the two requirements to be an apostle, right? person would have had to have been in, with Jesus in his earthly ministry, and number two would have been an eyewitness to his resurrection. They're led to select Matthias as a 12th, as we read in Acts chapter 1. Now, we could rightly assume that the apostles had in their mind and their heart their own calling. Because way back at the beginning of the gospel according to Luke, remember when Jesus was beginning his ministry, he called Simon Peter and his brother Andrew, James, and his brother John, sons of Zebedee the fishermen, right? the way that Jesus selected and called people to follow him. So as they are selecting Matthias, they have in their mind and heart what we're about to do is akin to, if not connected to, how we ourselves were called, right? How we ourselves were called by our risen Lord, who is no longer with us, but is with us. Likewise, when the Apostle Peter preaches at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, with all the tongues and all the languages and people are wondering, you know, are people drunk and so on and so forth, and Peter gives an interpretation of what's happening and goes on to preach, he preaches the gospel. He preaches about Jesus of Nazareth. And this continues again and again throughout the book of Acts. Whenever that there's a sermon preached, when, whenever the apostles are telling the crowd or telling the religious authorities or telling the governmental authorities who've arrested them, they give an account and they say, yes, let me tell you about this Jesus, the one who was crucified, the one who is risen. In other words, what they're doing is that they are so connected to the risen Lord, to the accounts, that those accounts are not past tense. They're living. They're shaping. They're forming. They are propelling. They're giving purpose and content and substance to what they're doing. Now, here's another example. The Apostle Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus, Right? He was a great persecutor, as we know, a great persecutor of the church. Until we read about in the book of Acts, when the resurrected Christ encounters him on his way to Damascus. And the resurrected Christ asks him, 
ask Saul of Tarsus, why are you persecuting me? Well, how is it that Saul of Tarsus is persecuting Jesus when Jesus isn't there? But the, the question of why are you persecuting me follows the accounts of when, the, when Saul of Tarsus is being described as one who searched out the people of the way, followers of Jesus, killing them, beating them, persecuting them. In other words, when you persecute my followers, you are persecuting me. There's the communion, there's the unity, there's the fellowship. The positive side of that is when you bless my people, when you welcome them into your towns, when you welcome them into your homes, when you love them, you love me. Right? And so we get a clearer picture then of when the church does what the church does, shares the gospel, lives out the gospel, clothes the naked, feed the hungry, shelters the orphan and widows, all the things that Jesus calls them to do, they are doing it in connection to what Jesus not only has done, but is doing. There was a uh, stand-up comedian on Laugh USA. I don't know if you have Sirius XM on your, in your car. I think it's channel 98 or 96. And it was uh, the week before Holy Week, one of these stand-up comedians was talking about um, the, the rubber bands, the WWJD. And he was saying, what's up with those WWJDs that you need, um, that you need those four letters on your, on your wristband to remind you to do what Jesus wants you to do? Right? He was just sort of laughing at that. And I was thinking, that's true. You know, why, why wear a wristband? Like, does it take a wristband to remind us, like, yeah, no, we should live out what Jesus um, has done. And I was thinking about that. WWJ, what would Jesus do should actually be what is Jesus doing? Right? It's not that what would he do or what did he do because Christ is risen, right? So what is he doing now? In other words, what are you doing? Because what you're doing is what Jesus is doing. Right? And that's why when Jesus, back in Matthew 16, when he tells Peter, when he tells Peter, um, what you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. He was teaching there about forgiveness. When you forgive, you are doing what Jesus is already doing, which is forgiving you. Right? In other words, we're, we are merely catching up to what Jesus is and has already been doing. The past, the past month, uh, many of you and um, folks at La Costa Glen and, and the wider congregation have been asking uh, my family, where are we headed to after, after next Sunday and after April 30? And as I stand here, as I stand here in front of you on this 20th day of April, I don't know yet. But my answer has been to folks, maybe I should put this on, my, on a t-shirt. When God knows, well, God knows, when God lets me know what God knows, I'll let you know, right? In other words, we're always catching up to what God already knows, 
right? I just don't know yet. And he hasn't disclosed it to me yet. I'm excited as you are to know where that is, right? But in the meantime, I don't know. And in many ways, the, uh, you know, talking about WWJD, what would Jesus do, is what is Jesus doing? And we are merely discerning what he's doing. But it's on the basis of, yeah, what he has done in his life. That's why Luke, Luke's account is so important to what happens in Acts. Because it's not a past memory. It's a living memory. It's a living tradition. Um, it is, it's a living faith. Because Christ is alive. And the Spirit enlivens the truth of Christ the presence of Christ in our present life. So we have Luke, we have Acts, we have Village Community Presbyterian Church. Right? What you do is continuing that story. It is, yes, looking at the past, but it's that past that is so alive in the present. The theology, the uh, Jewish theology of anamnesis, I've spoken about this before, so forgive me if I repeat myself. Those of you who haven't heard it, I'm going to say it, um, share it with you. Anamnesis, from which we get the term amnesia, but anamnesis is about memory. The Jewish theology of memory. Anamnesis is not about nostalgia. It's not about, oh, wasn't that wonderful what God did in freeing uh, Moses and the Israelites from Pharaoh, like way back? Oh, you know, wasn't it wonderful um, of what God did with Noah? Oh, wasn't it wonderful of what Jesus did on the cross? It's not that. The fullness of the Jewish theology of anamnesis is because the Spirit of the Lord transcends time and space, but also is in time and space, the Holy Spirit connects us to those events as if we were there and brings those events to the present as if it was here. And so that we can say, that was our exodus. That was our deliverance from Pharaoh. That was, we were there at the cross. You know, my, my favorite uh, Bible verse, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? That's the Apostle Paul. He is speaking about there that anamnesis. I am crucified with Christ. Well, how could I say that? I wasn't there at 30 AD or 30 Common Era. But because the Spirit brings me there, that's why our African-American sisters and brothers in their spirituals, they can sing, and they sang. The deliverance of the Israelites from Pharaoh is our deliverance. We were there. I'm going to ride in the chariot in the morning, Lord. I'm going to ride in the chariot in the morning, Lord. I'm getting ready, getting ready for the judgment day, my Lord, my Lord. Right? That was a black spiritual. They're singing, ride the chariot. Whose chariot? Elijah's chariot. Remember, Elijah disappeared 
the account that he was caught up in a chariot that brought him to heaven and he was no longer seen. Our black sisters and brothers sang that and many other spirituals to say, God will deliver us on that chariot. We're going to ride that chariot. So memory is living memory. And Luke and Acts is about that. And so when we say, I am crucified with Christ, we say yes. And I am resurrected with Christ, and we say yes. Because he is alive. So, Christ is risen, Christos Aneste, Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed, or truly Christ is risen. Alethos Aneste, truly, he is risen. Christos Aneste, Christ is risen. Alethos Aneste, truly, he is risen. Amen. All right. We have plenty of time. See, 109 verses. We did it. Easy peasy. Um, questions, um, comments, conversations. Let's, we have uh, maybe 10 minutes or so. Oh, let me say also for the, um, since it's also being recorded, uh, my colleague, uh, Professor David Fagerberg, who teaches at the University of Notre Dame, I put this on, on the uh, page two of your outline. I read this recently in, in his book, uh, Liturgical Mysticism. Wonderful insight. This is what he says, that um, Jesus didn't need the stone to be rolled away. Because remember, he walked through the doors, right, to, to the fearful disciples. He wrote, so the stone door was not rolled away to let him out, but to let the apostles see in. Isn't that true, right? Thank God for the women. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Joanna, and the other women who peered inside the tomb. And then they were followed after by Peter and, the, and some other apostles to look inside so then they could go and tell that the Son of God is risen. Right? So take that. Take that um, and hold that. The stone didn't need to be rolled away, but so that the apostles, the church, can testify of that truth. All right. Any any um, any uh, feedback? Any questions on this? Okay. Mary, the mother of James, mm. is James one of Jesus's brothers? Is mm. that the same Mary? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the question was um, in Luke twenty-four. Luke 24, verse 10, so we see Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James. Is that the same Mary, mother of Jesus? And yes. Uh, remember, um, there were, two, um, there were um, two Jameses, right? James, son of Alphaeus, um, and James, um, uh, brother of John, right? And, or actually three, this James, um, this James is the James who would be the Bishop of Jerusalem, uh, Book of James, James. And he and Mary here is identified, not Mary the mother of Jesus, but Mary the mother of James, to emphasize um, that, that maternal connection to the other brother. And why? Because James, remember Acts, 
James is going to be one of the key leaders in the early church, as I said, Bishop of Jerusalem, and he will play a central, pivotal role in the first council. That's why I think the early church was Presbyterian. They liked councils. <laughs> Committees and councils. We read about that council in Acts chapter 15. And that council is so very, 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 very important. How important? Very, very important. Because that council in Acts chapter 15 is trying to settle the question, or, and it won't be settled, but they try to settle the question of what is the relationship of Jews and Gentiles because the early church leaders have heard a report that there were some Gentiles who were not following the Mosaic law. So they sent a delegation to find out, and that delegation of two reports back. And who's presiding over the Council of Jerusalem? James. And so Luke and Acts again go together, Mary, uh, mother of James, um, is that same. And why is that so important to Acts? It's important because it gives legitimacy to what the council does, to what James will do in his leadership because he is directly tied to the risen Christ who is directly tied to the Holy Mother who is directly tied to the resurrection. I am fascinated with the um, translation differences in, in the different editions of the Bible. Um, I have to use the King James because that's what I grew up with. Yes. And it um, just feels like home to me. But I've noticed when I look at the same verse in the NIV version or, and I have not looked in any older versions, that sometimes there are pretty substantial differences in just the translation of one word. Mm -hmm. So would, would that book you mentioned earlier about uh, the Encyclopedia of Differences in the Bible, would, would that give an insight? Or where would you go to s see how the translations have kind of changed our understanding of the text? All right, yeah, the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties, that one. Um, so, in terms of the, of the differences in the, in the English translations, um, so what I advise folks, um, both in churches and, in my, and for my students, is to stay away from the paraphrase Bibles as much as you can. Um, the New King James, the New American Standard, and the NRSV, the New Revised Standard, which we use, I think those are the three very good translations. Um, what I also rely upon in my study when I prepare a sermon is to look at, um, to look at, or I use the tool uh, Blue Letter Bible. I think it's blueletterbible.com. And what it allows you to do is to look at all the various translations side by side to see. Um, now, of course, there's no replacing of, of looking at the original Greek and Aramaic, but we also have help with that with interlinear. Bible. So if you use that same tool, the um, Blue Letter Bible, and you, and you see the English translation, and you click on the words, it will show you the original Greek and the Strong's Concordance, the number that King James Version uses, and they'll give you the history of that word in the, um, in the ancient world, right? So it gives you a lot of like, okay. So then you could, you could almost make your own judgment which one of those English translations is more faithful to that background. 
I'm curious in your in your uh, and I grew up as well in the uh, King James uh, version. I used the NIV when I became a Christian, and then used NRSV, and I used the New American Standard. But I'm curious on that verse 24. Um, where is that? 24:11. How does the King James version? translate idle tales. I'm just curious. No, I just I have the New American Bible. Okay. And, and I was just the translation said it was um, utter nonsense. Utter nonsense, okay. Like. There we go. Utter nonsense it's called. Just wanted to say, Neil, that we love you and we care about you and we know you have a wonderful future. Oh. I do have one question. I have found through my life that when I'm a friend of a Jewish person, I feel so um, in need of the right words to tell them that we're the same, we're from the same place. Mm. And I feel that there, there would be something that I would have on the tip of my tongue when that occurs and I never seem to know what it is. Mm -hmm. Is there something that you would suggest um, when you're with, in company with Jewish believers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I say we have the same God of love okay. and the love of God, um, that we are all part of the same vine. Mm -hmm. They're the branch and we're the engrafted branch. That sounds good, yeah. thank you. Yeah. One of the questions was if you remember uh, getting to know more about the Lord. And my husband was stationed in Arabia, but was able to go to the Holy Land for Easter. And so he had Chris, uh, Easter morning at the garden tomb. Yeah. And later on, we were together with a group and we were there and we were in the garden, by the garden tomb. And he said, look, there's no one there. Go up. Hmm. And so he said, go by yourself. Hmm. And I went. And I walked through the door. Yes. And the feeling that I got, I will never, ever forget. Mm -hmm. He was there with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any others? All right. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you for you guiding your believers and followers of Jesus in every generation. Thank you for their testimony, the written testimony here and the living testimony. As generations and generations of followers of Jesus, of your children have lived out your truth, your love. We thank you for this time together that we can look at Luke 23 and Luke 24. And Lord, I pray for my friends here, for the Village Church, and indeed for all of us as we continue the story that the risen and ascended Jesus Christ does in and through our lives and in the lives of all your people in every time and place. So continue to bless us and equip us and empower us to testify of you and your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless everyone.